Welcome to Coffee House Theology. Y'all have kind of moved around on me. It's a little bit disconcerting. Y'all not supposed to mess with old people. It's getting me confused. No, I'm not calling you old. I'm calling me old. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm the one being messed with, I assure you. And it's not the years, it's the miles that are killing me. Holy cow. Yeah, that odometer gets rolling fast. That odometer gets rolling fast. All right, welcome to Coffeehouse Theology. Uh, we continue studying the goodness of God this semester. Uh, doing the, we're doing the second half of Romans 8. So if you want to want to pop over to, to verse 18, that's where we'll be starting tonight. Um, I'm terrible with logistics, so I don't know if there are any announcements or not, so we'll act like there aren't. Uh, if you want to be on the weekly email, there's the uh, uh, QR code. If you want to scan that, we send out the previous week's notes, and that's where we send kind of notes on when we're meeting, what we're meeting, and those kind of things, and you'll get that email uh, every week. And then we've got a Slido room, and here comes the eye test. Uh, how about let's go with 4252318. So you can go to slido.com and uh, put that number in, or you can scan the QR code. You can ask questions. You can also like questions that have been asked. And so that will pull them up in prominence, and so I'll, I'll know them. Again, I am alone, so we, we ask for easy questions. <laughs> right, so we can say that again together, easy questions. Um, but no, ask, ask, ask what's relevant to the, what the Lord puts on your heart. We'll, we'll try and figure it out. Um, Let's see what else we got. I, I think we're good. I think, I think that's what we got. Uh, let's, let's pray and, and, and start working on this. Father God, we are thankful, man. We are thankful for your grace. Uh, thankful for your son that saves us. Uh, you, you are so good. You are so good, Father. Even, even in circumstances where that's hard to see and that's hard to say, you were good. You were good all the time. And you work toward our good. And we're going to talk about that tonight. And so, Father, give us, give us hearts to hear, to, to hear your word, to clearly discern your truth. And then, Father, let us adjust our lives accordingly. Uh, we should ch be changed. Anytime we encounter your truth, Father, we should walk away different. So, so do not let us be the same people walking out who walked in. Let us look a little more like Jesus. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right. Y'all fired up? This is good stuff. And this is, and as, 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 you know, no surprise to anybody, right? This, this is some very common scripture to us, right? This scripture we've heard a lot, a lot. And so I would, I would ask you to listen to this with fresh ears, right? Because th this chapter, in all of chapter 8, as believers, chapter 8 should sink deep. Chapter 8 should sink deep. Right, this is concise, clear teaching about what it is to be with God, right? To, to follow Jesus. And so, uh, we'll talk about that a little more then. But, but this, this should, should sink deep. Um, and we look back, right, we look back on the book, right, we're doing the goodness of God. God is good. God is the standard of good, and what God does is good. And we're going to talk a lot about that standard of good. That's kind of where we're going tonight, right? It's good, what's good is what God says is good. Not what's comfortable to me, not what's comfortable to you, not what even looks like it's our advantage, right? But we know there is this superseding, right, goodness. This goodness that's beyond ourselves, that's at work, and always at work, Right? Isn't that cool? Isn't that absolutely cool? Um, this, uh, this, this chapter, uh, this chunk of the chapter really talks about suffering. And oh boy, are y'all going to suffer. All right? No, and, oh, yeah, just kidding. That was supposed to be funny. Man, y'all y'all listening with me? Uh, but right, but it's, it's, it's about what suffering is, what suffering does. And we've talked about that a little bit in chapter five, right? God said, right, we, we, we endure these things. We persevere because perseverance yields character. Character yields hope. Hope does not fail us, right? And we have to keep that in mind as, as we're going through our going through our uh, our sufferings. So uh, let's start with Romans 8, 19, 18 and nineteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And just as another footnote, most of the outline I'm using tonight stots. Um, and then kind of my stuff filled in around it. Um, and my tablet turned off. There we go. Uh, suffering and glory are the theme of the section, right? And it's divided really into the suffering and glory of God's creation and the sufferings of God's children, 
Um, Paul makes four kind of introductory points. The first is that the sufferings and the glory belong together inseparably. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Be, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. My paraphrase of verse 16 is don't suffer because you're a jerk, right? Suffer for Jesus. That's what we're talking about is suffering for Christ's name, not suffering because you're an idiot or I'm an idiot, right? And so... That just gotta keep in mind. First Peter four nineteen. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. John sixteen twenty and twenty two. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. John 16:33 I have said these things to you that you in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but take heart I have overcome the world right so when we suffer for Christ's sake when the world doesn't live according to God what God says is moral are we surprised why because he just told us right the world is going to oppose these things. The world is going to live in a manner opposed to him. Right? But God has overcome the world. Right? So we, that's not our concern. Right? That's not our concern. Suffering and glory are welded together and cannot be broken apart. We know this in small practical ways. Right? Through our experience. Uh, for all the glory we see, right, in our athletes and our, our performers, often hidden from view are the tens of thousands of hours that hone that talent that we don't see. Right, I, was, I was a session player back thousands of years ago in keyboards. And the hours and hours and hours and hours of practice that takes to do what those men and women do. And, and all you hear is two and a half minutes, <laughs> right, three minutes, hours thousands of hours practicing, honing their craft, doing different things, playing things different ways. It's astonishing. The athletes, right? You watch these, right? The basketball season's kicking up and I've played pickup basketball for a long time. Right? What these men do, what some of these women do, they're unreal. And it's thousands and tens of thousands of hours, but they have to go through that suffering, right? For that, for that end result. And that's the same thing. The Lord says, we, you know, he has suffered, the Lord has suffered, and so we will suffer. Um, Many people would like to perform like these people do, but few are willing to put in the work, right? And Jesus even says, count the cost or you follow me, right? Because it's going to cost to follow me, right? And that, that's all certainly kind of on a trivial scale relative to the eternal sufferings, right? The glory Paul is referencing in this message. Um, the suffering and the glory characterize two ages or eons. And this is the tension between the now and the not yet, right? Summed up in the Greek term for sufferings and for glory. Sufferings is pathimata and glory is doxa, right? Our sufferings are not limited to the opposition of the world, but also to our human frailty, both physical and moral. You thought about that? Right? Our, our, our own bodies and our, our kind of minds work against us, right? Because it's still being renewed day by day. That's what the process of sanctification is doing for us, right? So it's not just opposition outside. It's opposite, you know, and we decay, right? My body could do things a lot different when I was 22 than now, right? It's, yeah, that's unfortunate. Anyway, all right. So... The glory that we're going, right, the glory of God, though, right, is, is the inalterable splendor of God, right? Eternal, 
immortal, and incorruptible. And the sufferings and the glory are not the same magnitude to be compared, right? Just as our suffering and glory cannot be separated, they really can't be compared due to their vast difference in scale, which is almost infinite, right? Um, so we approach that exercise with, with humility, understanding that our sufferings in the context of the glory to come. In Second Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Uh, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Right? God's word just keeps telling us, right? Just keeps telling us. And that, so our sufferings are light and momentary, and the weight of glory is an encouragement by which we keep going, right? We, if you can see that end. My nephew was a seal, and he went through buds, which is where you're basically cold and wet for six months, right? And, and I asked him, how did you get through it? And he said, October 31st. I said, Halloween? He said, no. He said, October 31st, I would either be done or be dead. He said, there were two options. And he said, I was good either way. He said, as long as it stopped, as long as I was no longer cold and wet. He said, you know, and they did all kinds, they did all kinds of crazy things, but that's what it took to get it. But as long as he could see the other side, and I think a lot of Christians start to waver when we forget the glory to come, right? We, we forget where we're going. We forget whose we are, Right? And just like Stephen was looking for, looking at that, that date and going, you know, look, there's a date. There's a day coming, right? There's a day coming, right? And that day makes anything we do now worth it, right? That day. But we forget about that day, right? And you get blinded by the momentary. We get blinded by the immediate, blinded by what looks so important in front of us, Right? And that's Steve Robinson, right? He says there's all this stuff in our life that looks so important today. Right? A month from now, six months from now, a year from now, you don't even know what. And there's these little bitty, almost insignificant things God asks you to do. Pray, read your Bible, right? Repent, take care of each other, right? And that doesn't seem like anything in the moment, but you know, a month from now, and a year from now, and 10, right? Because the things of this world are fading away. The things of God go on forever, right? The things of this world fade away. The things of God go on forever. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? And we forget that, don't we? We forget that. <clears throat> Our sufferings are light and momentary. And the weight of, I just read that, the weight of glory encouraging keeps us going. The sufferings are, and the glory concern both God's creation and God's children. Uh, the sufferings and glory are both the material order and God's people are related. Both are groaning and both are going to be set free together. As nature is shared in the curse, it is, it is now shared in the pain and it will share in the glory. The word for eager expectation here is derived from the word, Greek word for head, meaning to wait with the head raised, the eye fixed on the point of the horizon from which the expected object is to come. It depicts straining the neck to be able to see. And, and what is creation? This is Stott's definition. It says, by the creation then, we have, the intended, what, we have intended the earth with all its contains, animate and inanimate, man accepted, or the subtotal of the subhuman nature. Which is not to say man's not created. He just talks about creation and man separately, right? So this is just the, the separation. This is what Paul was talking about in this passage. Does that make sense? So it's not a differentiation that we're somehow not created. All right. So the suffering and glory of God's creation, verses 20 through 22. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth up and down now. 
right? And uh, Paul personifies creation, right? Like the way we do in, in, uh, in the Old Testament, right? He did it back in Psalms 96, 11. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Um, you know, Jesus in Luke 1940 said, look, if, if y'all don't sing, the rocks will, right? And that was not a personification. He literally meant the rocks would sing, right? He literally meant the rocks would sing, right? So, so Paul makes three statements about uh, creation. Um, the creation was subject to frustration. And this verse refers back to the judgment of God that fell on the natural order, right, following Adam's conscience. And so Genesis 3, 17 and 18. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. Right, the ground is cursed because of you. The ground produces thorns and thistles. And Adam and his descendants will extract food only through the sweat of their face. Right, Paul sums this up in the word futility. Right, and so much of life feels futile. Right, that's that futile struggle, that sin loosed on the created order. Right, is that, is that sense of futility. Um, the, the basic idea of that word is emptiness, whether, the, whether of purpose or result. Um, Ecclesiastes 1-2, it's the word chosen to translate vanity in vanities of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is a vanity. All, right, all of Ecclesiastes is a commentary on that verse. Right, that vanity of vanity, all is vanities. Right? A life lived under the sun, imprisoned in time and space, with no ultimate reference to either God or eternity. The ground was cursed due to Adam's sin. Right? It was not willing. Right? But only God entertained hope. Right? And that's that the creation itself will be liberated. Uh, the word for hope is the pivot point right, between the past and the future of creation. Its futility will not be forever. Right? Our futility will not be forever. Right, there is a time coming. And one day we, it will experience liberation. In a negative sense, right, creation will be liberated from corruption. Um, the Greek word for corruption uh, denotes not only just that the universe is decaying, but that it is also enslaved, locked into an unending cycle so that conception, birth, and growth are inevitably followed by decline, decay, death, and decomposition. Creation still works in its fine-tuned and delicately balanced processes. Much of creation is breathtakingly beautiful, right? Revealing the creator's hand. But even that fades in its bondage to disintegration and frustration, right? We talked about you're either a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin. Same thing for creation, right? We talked about this last week. People go, it's my will or God's will. It is not. It is not. You are a slave to sin if you are not following God. The consequences of your sinful action will build to such a point that it boxes you in, right? And we all been there, right? That's what a slave to sin, it's not your will, it's the consequences, the compounding consequences of your sin that dominate your life without God, right? What a happy thought. All right. So in the end, it will be re rescued from the shackles of mortality and obtain freedom of the glory of God's children. Uh, the nouns correspond to the previous phrase. So out of bondage into freedom, out of decay into glory, out of corruption into incorruptibility, right? God's creation will share in the glory of God's children, which is it's in itself the glory of God. Right, the whole of creation has been groaning with the pains of childbirth. This groaning occurs in eager longing for the, of the current state of creation, right, for that future state. They provide an assurance of the coming new order. Um, when Rachel, my wife, was pregnant with our first son, um, I get up at 1.32 in the morning, and I, I start doing my Bible study and, and read, and I start working about three or four. And so I got up about 1.30 or 2. It was about a month. And I'm an engineer. So, right, Benjamin is going to be, it's, not, it's a nine-month period in which the baby is being grown. And so I had that charted out. And so, right, we were ready for, ready for his June birth. And so about a month early, I get up at 2 o'clock, and Rachel gets up, uses the restroom, comes back, says, my water broke. 
And, I, and being the wise man that I am, I said, no, it didn't. <laughs> right? It's, we got a month before that happens. I have a, I have a schedule. <laughs> right? And so I was like, I'm going to take a shower. And she goes, well, I'm going to call the hospital. I'm like, okay. So she, she called the hospital. I'm going to shower. By then, the contractions hit. Right? And my wife was on the floor. I didn't realize you could ride in a Honda Accord suspended by that little you know, handle above the door. She, we, rode, we drove down to Centennial. She was literally suspended from that thing in, in the pains of childbirth. Right? And, and it, was, it was excruciatingly painful. Right? But, but what, what came out of that? Benjamin. Right? Benjamin. And would she tell you all of that pain was worth it? Yes and more. Right? Yes and more. Right? Because those pains of childbirth were nothing compared to, right, the life we've gotten to see the Lord build in Benjamin. Right? And the, the life that he's built in Micah. Right? How cool is that? But there are those pains of childbirth that had to come. Right? And creation is in the pangs of childbirth. Do, do we see that? Right? It's everywhere. That's what all this consternation is. That's what all this strife is. Right? That's what all this injustice is. Right? People being misled. People, people being destroyed by sin. Right? And, and their problem isn't their state of sinful action. Their problem is they don't know Jesus. Right? We've talked about this the last several weeks, right? The only difference between you and anybody else is the grace of God. Right? So whatever you think is horrible, whoever you think, right, you are God's grace away from being that person. I'm God's grace away from being that person. Right? But God is so merciful that he saved me. Right? God is so merciful that he saved you. Right? All right, sorry. Uh, verse 22, so, God, so verse 22, right, brings together the past, the present, the future, right? Creation was groaning until now, right? And then, of course, now, and then looking forward to the coming order. And each of the verses in 20 through 22 expresses the combination of present sufferings and future glory. All right, so the sufferings of God's children, right? Verses 23 through 27. And not only cre the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope is that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Right? We who are in the Spirit and not in the flesh, having the first fruits of the Spirit, continue to groan for the consummation of creation. Right? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Right? We are the tension in the tension of the now and not yet. What God inaugurated by giving us the Spirit and will finish in our final adoption and redemption, we groan in discomfort in our longing. The internal Spirit gives us joy. The coming glory gives us hope. But the interim suspense gives us pain. Right? Paul highlights five aspects. We're going to look at five aspects of these tense conditions between the now and the not yet. And some commentators have, and I saw two different commentators say this, said that this is us being half saved. You are not half saved. Nobody's half saved. I don't I really, that really made me nervous when people are talking about it. Right? Because you're, you're one, right? There's a sense, right, in justification, sanctification, glorification. You are saved. We were saved in justification. We are being saved in sanctification. And we will be saved in glorification. Does that make sense? But you have eternal life now. You know how I know that? Because God said it. So if you are saved, you have eternal, you are not half saved, you are saved. You have eternal life now. There is now no condemnation, right? Now. So that half saved really bothered me. And I'm not really going off on y'all. I'm just, so if you see that in the commentary, you can think Brian really doesn't like this. I don't. All right, we good? 
All right, we are not kind of saved is actually what I think I wrote down. Um, all right, so the, the Greek word for first fruits was both the beginning of the harvest and the pledge that the full harvest would follow in due time. So we remember the Feast of the Weeks, right? Pentecost was the celebration on which the Spirit had been given. 2 Corinthians 1.22 reminds us the Spirit is our first installment, down payment, pledge to guarantee a future purchase. Right, and first, Second Corinthians 1, 20 through 22. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirits in our hearts as a guarantee. Right? And I think it's interesting in the Old Testament, right, when God talked about first fruits, right? Exodus 23, 19a, uh, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. And then Leviticus 23, 9 through 11. I know y'all always love Leviticus. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the Sabbath priest shall wave it. Now, when what I think is fascinating about this, and Benjamin and I have kind of debated back and forth because it's not an exact match, but right when God provides his son as the sacrifice, we get the first fruit. Right? When God provided his son as the sacrifice, we get the first fruit. Right? We've been told to give God the first fruits. And now not only does God provide the sacrifice, he gives us the first fruits. Is that just mind-boggling? Anybody else? That's just, that's just mind-boggling. How, how good is that, right? How good is that? How good is that? We groan inwardly. Amen. Oh, all right, the Spirit's inward dwelling and our groaning are juxtaposed, right? The Spirit in us reminds us that our salvation is not yet finished in glorification. And for that we groan. Our fail, frail and decaying bodies remind us of this state, like the decay of the creation around us. And that's, right, and that's over in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 through 5. For in this tent we groan, longing to be our heavenly, in our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting on it we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the, script, the spirit as a guarantee, right? We also groan in our fallen nature, that in, in our fallen nature that is diminishing in, in sanctification, but ever present. Right, also reminding us that we are not yet where we are to be. Right, we're still battling sanctification. Is that the the power become of sin becoming less and less? Right, but it's still there. Right, it's still there. Uh, we eagerly wait our, for ado our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We've already been adopted by God, right? That was verse 15. And the Spirit assures us that we are his children, verse 16. An even deeper relationship with the Father awaits us in glory. Right? Our spirits are alive, but one day the spirit will bring life to our bodies. One day our body will be like Christ's glorious body. Right? That's Philippians 3.21. Bondage to decay will be replaced by freedom to glory. Hmm. That's awesome. Uh, in this hope we are saved. Hope is in the aorist or the past tense, bearing witness to our decisive past liberation from guilt and bondage of our sins and from the judgment of God upon them. We are still between the now and the not yet, but our hope is certain, right? That's what faith is, the certainty of hope, Hebrews 11 says, right? Um, well, we cannot see our hope. We can be certain in what he has given us and live in the certainty of that hope. Right, that's what living by faith is, is living in the certainty of hope. Right, that what we hope for is real, and because it's real, we live accordingly. Right? We work that back. All right, we wait for it with patience. Ha ha. Uh, we, while we groan for redemption to come, we patiently wait for it. Uh, it's interesting, right? we can fall off on two places. Uh, we can become anxious and overeager, right? Causing us to lose our patience. We can also be too patient 
and lose our eagerness and expectation for what's to come, right? We lose our hope, right? We are to find a balance, not too eager to lose our patience, nor too, nor too patient to lose our eagerness, but eagerly and patiently waiting together, right? That's a, that's a tough balance, right? Because it, it gets hard to wait sometimes, right? It's hard to wait sometimes. And also you're going, it's just that far off. What does it matter what I do now? Does it really matter whether I read the Bible when I wake up this morning, right? Does it really matter if I pick up that cross and walk with it today, right? Do those things really matter? And what's the answer? They do. They do. They make an eternal difference. And that's why we're here to encourage each other to good works, right? We encourage each other to good works because this is too hard to do by yourself. Amen? And that's why we need each other. That's why we do this. That's why we come together for teaching. That's why we come together for preaching. That's why we come together and sing. Right? It's so that we remember and we take care of each other, right? We take care of each other. I keep thinking I've only got like 20 minutes of material and I'm gonna get you all out here at seven. That hasn't worked out so far. All right, we'll get there, I promise. Verse 26 opens with likewise the Spirit, meaning our Christian hope sustains us. So does the Holy Spirit. The Spirit helps us in this in-between, frail, fragile state. And in particular, he helps us in our prayers. We are ignorant. We do not know what to pray, but he knows. He intercedes for us. We have two divine intercessors, right? Jesus intercedes for us in the court of heaven, and the Holy Spirit intercedes in our prayers from our hearts. Right, the Holy Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. The accurate translation of this is, is, is really wordless. Right? So, this, so, so this is wordlessness. In that the Spirit intercedes in prayers that are not, express, not unexpressed, but inexpressible. Read that again. The Spirit intercedes in prayers that are not unexpressed, but inexpressible. Right? There are points in your life that you hit that words are too blunt, right? They're too blunt an instrument to express what you have, what's, what's happening, right? And the inner, the spirit, when in our prayers, intercedes for us. It takes those things that words can't describe and brings them before the Father. Right? Things we can't even express, the spirit brings to the Father. Isn't that unreal? Right? And, and there are moments of joy that words can't explain, right? And there's moments of sorrow that words can't explain, right? But the Holy Spirit intercedes because he knows what we need. Right? And the Father is so good that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. That is so good. That is so good. Um... One example might be when we, whether to pray for deliverance from our sufferings or strength for perseverance. I personally pray for both. Uh, God knows the desire of my heart. I would really like us to come up to some difficult situation. Him plop me on the other side and I say, wow, that was close. Right? Does he do that? Not very often. Right? But what does he do? He walks through it with us. Right? He walks through it with us. You know, and I've kind of figured, do you, you know why he walks through us with us? So when you get to the other side and you look at that trial, you know you never have to be afraid again. Because I know God's bigger than that. Right? And after a while of him walking through those trials and you realizing God's bigger than that, you start to realize the one you face, God's bigger than those too. Right? Right? And so he walks through that so you know where to properly place your authority where you properly place, right? That that rests in God and God alone. And you have nothing to fear. You are free. Amen? You are free. And so he walks through that so that you don't have to be afraid anymore. Praise be to God. Now, when I think of prayer, and this kind of hit me, I think I, I'm pretty sure I stole this from, I stole this from somebody. 
I, th- I think of Job. Job is a common topic in our house, which is kind of sad. Um, but but it, Benjamin has a particular fascination. He almost wrote his master's thesis uh, on it, on Job. And Job was the first, probably the first book written in the Bible. And it's just, it's fascinating to think about that and to think about what right, the priestliness, right, of, of Job and sacrifices, right? It's, just, it's a wild, just wild thing. Um, but one of the kind of dominating characteristics of Job is that he prays, right? He prays a lot. He prays a lot. And he prays angry, right? That dude is angry, right? That dude is frustrated, right? He doesn't understand. And he brings all of that directly to God, right? No ducking, no hiding, no pulling punches directly to God. And you know what God says in the end, after all this goes through, the end of the chapters? He tells Job's friends, you better ask Job to pray for you. Because I'll listen to Job and not leave you in your folly, right? Because God already, I know this is a shock to you, God already knows you're frustrated. God already knows you don't understand. When you pray to him honestly, your heart changes. God is big enough for your honest prayers, right? That's what Job teaches us, right? That's what Job teaches us. Right after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Wow. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant, servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Terminite and Bilad the Shushite, I can't pronounce all these things, and Zophar the Naamite, went, went and did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Right? For all that Job went through, all the harsh ways Job prayed, that's the prayer God accepts. Because Job did it humbly and honestly, Right? There's a humility to Job the whole time. And when we humbly and honestly go to God, those prayers will change your heart. God will change your heart. Job never stopped praying, right? He never quit holding on to God. And as we pray, right, that's our effort to hold on to him. It's interesting that after writing of the groaning of creation and the groaning of God's children, Paul writes of the groaning of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Perhaps he groans with us, right? Bringing these inexpressible desire for the coming glory to the Father where we cannot. Three persons are involved in our prayer. We ourselves in our weakness do not know what to pray for. The indwelling Holy Spirit intercedes for us and through us with inexpressible groanings brings our prayers to God. God the Father, who searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit, hears and answers our prayers. Here in this section, right, the Spirit was emphasized as the Spirit interceded to God's will. We good on that? Because right, the next, next thing is the, next, the steadfastness of God's love. And this is just awesome. I'm going to read it all in one chunk and then we'll read it kind of chunk by chunk as we go through it. Romans 8, 28 through 39. And we know that those for, who, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, he who, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of, of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That's good news, right? That's, that's good news. That's good news. Um, verse 28, right, is one of the central statements on the goodness of God in the entire Bible. Um, he superintended, his superintended purposes on any and all of our sufferings reinforces our hope in the eternal purposes of God's work and that we who are in Christ, Christ can rest in that promise. Right, that there's a superseding purpose, superintended purpose for God's good on anything we suffer. How cool is that? How cool is that? All right, and uh, this is this is I really like this structure. Uh, five unshakable convictions out of eight twenty-eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Verse twenty-eight is one of the best-known texts in the Bible. The verse begins with "We know," right? Like verse twenty-two, two assertions of Christian knowledge: the groaning creation and God's providential care. There are lots of things we don't know, starting with what to pray, right? What you mentioned above. We are in constant tension of the limits of our knowledge as, and as we always think we need to know more. Verse 28 gives us these five truths about God's providence. We know that God works and is at work in our life, right? God is endlessly, ceaselessly, energetically, and purposefully working in the lives of those who are in Christ. That work is through everything we do, everything we encounter, every circumstance and trial. He works even we don't, when we don't think he is, when we can't see or sense it. His mighty hand continues its efforts to his end. God is at work for the good of his people. We have to remember God's works are expressions of God's goodness. And the standard of good is God, not us, our comfort, our convenience, our desires, not anything else either. He understands our good in terms we can't even conceive, as his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Even places where we don't understand, we know he is working for our good. God works for good in all things, all of our circumstances, victories, defeats, trials, and suffering. Our sufferings are rendered to our good forming character and yielding hope. That is truly incredible. That is truly incredible. God works all in all things for the good of those who love him. This is a necessary limitation. Paul is not expressing a universal, general, superficial optimism that all things will work out in the end, right? Right? It is the good which is God's objective to is our completed salvation. Then its beneficiaries are his people who love him. We are commanded to love him in the first and greatest commandment. Those who love God are described as those who've been called according to his purpose. God has a saving purpose and is working in accordance with that. Life is not a random mess. Life is not the random mess. It may sometimes appear. These five truths we know. We know, right? We do, often don't understand what he's doing, let alone welcome it, right? But he is at work, uh, he is, and he is not at work for our convenience or comfort. We see the example in Joseph, right, in, in Genesis fifty twenty, where he tells his brother, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, right? If you remember that, right, Joseph was with him, and his brother sold him, right, put him in a pit, and God was with him, and then he sold him to some right, traitors, and God was with him, and then he was thrown in jail, and God was with him. If I'm Joseph at some point, I'm asking God to go be with somebody else, right? You just, I just need a break. Right? I mean, come back. I love you and everything, but let's just be honest, right? If, God, if this is what God being with me, right, do you feel like that sometimes? Like, Lord, if this is God being with you, you know, can, can I just call, do you get like three timeouts or something, right? But you, you don't. 
You don't, right? But again, that's why we have each other. Because when I can't lift up my arms, y'all lift my arms up for me, right? And when you can't lift up your arms, I lift up your arms. That's what we do, right? That's, that, that's how this works. That's how this works. Um, and you have to go with what you know. The other mother, Benjamin, story, we, Benjamin prayed for a lady, uh, Aunt Beth, who, who had a recurrence of breast cancer. He was probably four, I think, when we started. And, he went, and we used to go down to the steps and pray, and he would go down and, and hold her hand and pray for her. And when she was too sick to go down, he'd crawl up in her lap and pray with her. And Beth died when he was about seven. And so uh, Benjamin was torn up. Benjamin said, my faith wasn't strong enough to save Aunt Beth. And I said, buddy, that's, that's not how this works. That's not how this works. And Benjamin, and they had an open casket, and we were talking about going to visit. So we decided to take Benjamin to visitation. So Rachel and Benjamin, I come in from work. We meet in the church parking lot. Uh, start walking in. Benjamin reaches up, holds my hand. He goes, Daddy, I got this figured out. I'm like, okay. He said, uh, Aunt Beth was really sick. He said, Aunt Beth was really sick. And uh, he said, I really miss Aunt Beth. He said, I love Aunt Beth. But with God, I know she's healed. I know she's whole and with him in heaven. And sometimes what you, what you think and feel will lie to you. And you have to go with what you know. And what I wish I were that mature. <laughs> I'm just sad, buddy. And so that was kind of the, right, that's the, the words of a seven-year-old. Right? And there's a lot of times where you have to go with what you know in spite of what you think and feel. You have to believe God's word because what you think and what you feel will lie to you, right? And yeah, he's 22 now and he continues to say stuff like that. So it's very distressing in my home. <laughs> very distressing. All right. Five undeniable affirmations. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that they might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestines, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Tons of ink has been spilled on these verses. Um, in systematic theology, we talked at length about the balance of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Uh, we have verses supporting both. I'm not smart enough to understand the balance between them. If you want to listen, we'd like to, we literally did an hour somewhere in April, I think, of 21, somewhere in there. If you want to go back on the podcast, there's a full discussion. Uh, though I really like how Stott said this, though. Um, those who got, those... Um, those gods foreknew. To know is much more than an intellectual cognition. It shows a personal relationship of care and affection. Meaning in the New Testament to love and to choose. One commentary talked about this being for loved, which I really thought was interesting. That he prepared a path and a way for those who love him to be saved. That meshes really well with the proto-evangel in Genesis 3.15, right? He knew that we would fall and knowing we could not save ourselves prepared a way that we could be reconciled with him. Those God foreknew, for loved, right? He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Salvation is God's alone. And while we make a decision for Christ, God made all of it possible in his love, mercy, and grace. Predestined translates to decide beforehand. It's also used in, in Acts 4.28. Now we decided for Christ, but only because God allowed us to decide for Christ. The doctrine of predestination promotes humility and not arrogance. Assurance and not apprehension, responsibility and not apathy, holiness and not complacency, and mission and not privilege. We are to be conformed to the likeness of his son, right? We're predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. We have talked about this in previous weeks, that we don't conform to the world. We don't certainly don't conform. We don't even conform to the law. We conform ourselves to Christ. This is the process of sanctification, that we are formed to Christ more day by day as we walk with him in the power of the Holy Spirit. Those he predestined, he also called. The call of God is the application of God's predestination in history. I really like that. Um, 
People are called to the gospel of Jesus Christ and when the gospel comes to them with power and they respond with obedience and faith and we know God has chosen them. Uh, Thessalonians, First, Thess- First Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. The call here is not the general general gospel invitation, but the divine summons, which raises the spiritually dead to life. This is often called God's effective or effectual call. That's different than his general call. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those he called, he made, he made righteous in God's sight. Justification, as we've discussed at length before, is the declaration that we are sinners now righteous in God's sight because of his confirmant of that status, which is the righteousness of Christ himself. He became sin with our sin so that we may become righteous with his righteousness. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Our destiny is to be given new bodies, amen, in a new world, both of which are transfigured with the glory of God. Sanctification is implicitly in these verses, right? Sanctification is glorification begun. Glorification is sanctification consummated. Paul states that the prophetic, this in the prophetic past tense, stating that what is to come in the past tense. With these five stages, God forms an unbreakable chain. He closes these, these next section with five unanswerable questions. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also be, <coughs> sorry, also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That still fires me every time I read it. I realize I just read it like two minutes ago. Holy cow. All right. Opens with what then shall we say to these things? He said this a few other times, right? 6-1, And he asked five unanswerable questions, right? A challenge to anyone who would deny the truth they contain. If God is for us, who can be against us? Wow. Our, right, our immediate list would be almost endless. It seems like everything is against us, right? Everything from our own flesh to unbelievers, the corruption of the national, natural order, death, right? Still an adversary we face on this side of glory. An intelligent evil stalks the world working to our detriment. So how can Paul say this, right? The key is the if. God is for us is a claim that cannot be made by everyone, only those who are in Christ. Many times in the Old Testament, God declared he is against you, right? Most frequently in the oracles against the nations, which y'all loved me reading over you out of Ezekiel, remember, right? When he was, which included Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, Tyre, and Sidon, um, right? But um, we who are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, who can possibly stand against God and his work, Right? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give him, give with him graciously us all things? Paul points to the cross, right? This phrasing echoes God's response to Abraham in Genesis 22, 16. Because you have done this, I have and have not withheld your son, your only son. Gave him up is the same language used with Judas in the betrayal of Jesus in Luke 22, 6, right? So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him, right? To give him the absence. And I love this quote, right? Um, Octavius Winslow, I think, said this. Uh, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate, Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Amen? The cross is the guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. Right? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Right? No prosecution can succeed in light of God's work. 
Um, Isaiah 63, 8 and 9. Who, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Right? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who lived, who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Jesus Christ died. Our condemnation fell on him, and he paid the full price of our sins. After death, he was raised to life. He was raised by the Father, demonstrating the Father's approval of Christ as our sacrifice and as the basis of our justification. He is sitting at the right hand of God. He is resting from his finished work in the place of supreme honor. He is interceding for us. Seated in this position, Christ intercedes on our behalf, securing the benefits of his death. As we talked about last week with a woman caught in adultery, no one is left to accuse us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is the top step of the five questions. Paul brings forward a simple, a, a sample of adversaries and adversities that might stand between us and God. He mentions seven possibilities, tribulation, distress, and persecution, which seem to denote the pressures, of the, the pressures and distresses caused by the broken world. Famine and nakedness, subjects from the Sermon on the Mount that denote our potentially same, shameful state in the eyes of the world around us. Danger or sword may mean risk of death and the experience of it. Martyrdom is certainly the final test for the Christian faith, and that may be culminated here. The list could go on. Hebrews 11 speaks of so many who endured for the faith, right? Pain and misery cannot accept us from God's love. As a matter of fact, we are more than conquerors. All things are working for the good of those who believe in Christ Jesus, our Savior, and his victory is ours. Our circumstances may not show it, See, I said, see famine and nakedness above. But the reality is that we stand in victory in our hope. Verses 38 and 39 are the climax of Paul's work in this chapter. For I am sure. Paul has become and remains convinced in the rational, settled, unalterable way. Death and life are certainly well within Christ's purvey. The word for demons represents evil principalities elsewhere in scripture. Angels is added with demons to represent the entire cosmic realm. All are in submission to Christ. The next two couplets represent time and space, God's dominion over the created universe. Anything else in creation completes the picture so that it is not, so it is not what is not him is under him. In the end, we do not have confidence in our love for God, right? Because that's frail and fickle and faltering. Our confidence is in his love for us. Steadfast, faithful, and persevering, right? It's not us that hold him. It's him that holds us, right? That's why this matters, right? And I talked about, talked about this needs to go deep. Um, sometimes when, when, you, when I'm struggling in my faith, one of, the, one of the exercises that's helpful is I will physically write out Romans 8. I don't know if you remember when Deuteronomy, was it 20 or 22, where he talks about, you know, when you have a king, right? We, you know, we thought, you know, God, you know, Israel wasn't to have a king. Turns out God made provision. It says when you have a king, first thing he does is write himself a copy of the law. First thing. Can you imagine if the president's first day in office starts writing, right? And that's his first work is to write out the law, right? That was what the king of Israel, that was the prescription, I do this with Romans, with Romans 8 because it reminds us of who we are and whose we are, right? There is no condemnation. You're free. <laughs> You're free, right? The Holy Spirit is in you to guide you, right? We talked about that. The power of that pillar of fire is in you. That pillar of fire is in you, right? You're going to suffer. You are going to suffer but it's nothing compared to the glory to come because God holds you. Amen? Right? 
And you've got to keep coming back to this. Benjamin uses an, an illustration from Gil Vicente, who's a you know, Portuguese playwright. And he says, the pursuit of love is like falconry, it requires circling daily and the ritual of flying back, returning again and again. Right? And that's why we have to keep studying this. We have to keep returning to this again and again, reminding us of God's love, reminding us that he holds us, right? Right? That he holds us and we don't hold him. We good? This helpful? All right. Easy questions, right? Made an agreement before all this. Let me, give, let me take a second and gather myself. Find God and give three examples. Wait a minute, no, just kidding. Uh, let's see. All right. So is it wrong to pray for God to keep us from suffering? No. No. You're welcome to pray to God, but, but if he answers you by taking you through suffering, that's, a, that's still an answer, right? I pray for God to keep me from suffering all the time. My knee hurts. I don't want my knee to hurt anymore, right? And I ask the Lord to take that pain from me. Should he choose to leave that pain with me? So be it, right? Because his will is greater than my will. But no, God, God, just in case you didn't know, God already knows you don't want to suffer. That's not a secret, right? He's, he's not surprised, Really? Wow, I thought you were a masochist. All right, statement, not question. You are not that old. Hey, thank you. I needed that tonight. Um, <laughs> you're not that old. I like that old, by the way. It's not that I'm not old. I'm not that old. I'm like, wait a minute. Okay. Is it wrong to say salvation is a free gift if it costs us everything, die to self? Um, it's a free gift in that we don't pay the, the penalty of sin because we are unable to pay that. And so God gives it to us freely. Our, the, the dying to self is our response to God's gift. Right? We, we respond to God's gift because the only thing we can do, right? When you, when you understand what he did, right? That's our response to it. That's our response. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, what word picture would you use to describe what liberated creation looks like? I have no idea. This place is so messed up. You know, uh, I grew up in rural Tennessee, and I got to tell you, some of the waterfalls that you come up on, when, and I'm a sunrise guy, my, uh, as you know, getting up in the middle of the night, so I'm a sunrise. When, when those sunrises hit those waterfalls just right, um, I think that's a glimpse of glory, right? My, my wife would say beaches. She's a beach thing. I hate sand. It's in everything. Like it's in my car. It's still in my car. Right now, it's in my car. I haven't been to the beach in two years. It's still in my car. <laughs> Right, sand, that's, that's why. Why you could have, I don't know. Right, but that, I guess that's kind of, but I think those are, I, I think it's so incomprehensible. It goes back to that wordlessness. Right, I think it's wordless. Wordless. Uh, let's see. It's being half saved like being kind of pregnant or mostly dead. Yeah, which makes good movie fodder. Uh, let's see. Could it be said that we are the first fruits of Christ's sacrifice? I... Uh, I don't know that I would. I don't know that I would say that. I, I would. I, I think the, the scripture is pretty clear that the Holy Spirit's first fruits. I, I, I would have to. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I would say that. I'm not sure I would say that. Uh, what does it mean to be more than conquerors? It means that because Christ has overcome, we have overcome all this with Him, and He's overcome in such an enormous. Uh, it, it's kind of like a. Right, what was the football game the other? Uh, the professional football game where they beat like seventy to zero, right? It's about like being beaten seven hundred to zero. Right, and as part of that overwhelming conquering, we're part of that, and so that's more more than we can even understand conquering to be, right? More, more than we can, and that that's what's so awesome about Romans eight is it shows us our limitations, right? That while we can conceive of certain things, God is beyond all that, right? God is beyond all that. What was the quote for who Jesus who gave Jesus up for death? That was. Uh, Octavius Winslow. Uh, I can, it, it, I can, I'll stick it in. You want me to stick it in the handout next week? 
That'd be helpful. Yeah, I'll be glad to stick that in the handout next week. Or handout when, I, when we email it out. I'll stick that in there. It's, and I love it, right? Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. That's just awesome. That's a fantastic. But the Father for love, right? That's why Jesus, Jesus, Jesus gave himself up, right? We didn't, nobody killed Jesus. Nobody killed Jesus. He gave himself up, right? That's just awesome. Sorry. Uh, you and Peter do not say suffer for being an idiot. Personally, it seems to be my favorite way. Yeah, unfortunately, it seems all too common for me, right? That you're like, wow. Um, yeah, wow. All right, we good? This helpful? Don't look like I have too many casualties. Y'all look, look, pretty, look pretty good. All right, let's pray, pray and head home. Father God, man. We're thankful. We're thankful for grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. We are thankful that you hold us. And we don't have to hold on to you. But Father, that's our greatest desire. Is to conform our lives to Christ. To look more like Jesus every single day, Father. And we pray for that day. When, when Jesus comes down to get us or we get to go see him. But in the meantime, sanctify us. Purify us. Use us to your glory. And, and we realize that that may mean things that are uncomfortable and unpleasant for us. But if it brings people to Christ and it glorifies you, Father, not, not our will, but yours. And so, Father, don't let us be the same people who walked in. We've encountered your truth. We've encountered your word. And we should be changed and transformed and look more like Jesus. And let your grace make it so. In the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you all.